0: This is where Gombin I think, overstates things a lot of times, right? Like, is it even overstating though?
1: It's almost like a different category than overstatement.
0: Yo, what is going down everybody? Welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast where we could bullshit with impunity. I am Austin Hayden-Smith. And I am Troy Polidori. And this week we are finally going to be tackling the patron-chosen topic, which, I mean, how was it actually titled, Troy? Like, how did we actually, when we ran the poll, what was it actually called?
1: I think we just called it Capitalism as Religion uh Benjamin and Agamben.
0: Yeah, and now this was a, a topic that was suggested on Patreon, and then, as always, we ran a poll, and the patrons selected this one. So we read in preparation a short little missive by uh, Walter Benjamin, and then also a little essay by Giorgio Agamben on this topic, explicitly on capitalism as religion, not capitalism and religion, um, but capitalism as religion. So, um, so yeah, so that's kind of what we're going to be talking about in the main segment today. Um, and then, of course, as a quick shout-out, if you want access to future polls where you can suggest topics that we talk about, and then so that you can vote in the patron-chosen polls, go to patreon.com slash owlsatdawn. Just a reminder, too, we've also launched our Discord, so if you want yeah, access yeah, to Discord. that— yeah, there's been some cool chat too, some uh, interesting philosophical quotes, some memes have been shared, some people have been talking about um, the Sarah Jaffe episode that we did last time and and some things, so there's been some really good, good engagement already so far, so please definitely keep that up. Let's start a little bit of community here where we can talk about stuff, and Troy and I are going to dip in as often as we can to... Uh, throw out little nuggets and answer questions and also try to try to clarify things and then just kind of learn from you guys as well. So go to patreon.com slash owlsatdawn to get access to that as well as bonus episodes, all other bonus things. We're also kind of brainstorming about things that we can offer in the uh, upcoming future here. So keep an eye out for that. And then the last thing I'll say about this kind of stuff is that we also have our merch page up. So don't forget that. You can go to owlsatdawn.com and you can check out our merch. We've got cool totes and mugs and... Fucking stickers and things like that. So, uh, owlsatdawn.com dot com if you want to get your gear so that you can rep bullshitting with impunity. You know, rep that shit. So yeah, that's kind of what's going on. Anything else I'm missing, Troy? No, not that I can think of. Should we jump into
1: this thing? Oh, yeah, let's do it. All right. So you know the first thing we got to do before we start talking about capitalism and religion and all that high-minded huh. shit, we got to do, do. This, we got to do that shitty minute first, dude. Hmm that's the part of the podcast for the uninitiated where one of us rants and raves about whatever it is that's grinding our gears this week so austin what's got you down
0: so yeah so for people who uh listened to the special episode where i talked about um my cousin um and the kind of the the tragedy that befell my family um you'll know that that's obviously been what's wearing me down um But uh, I was going to talk about that as my shitty minute, but actually Troy and I just had like this amazing hour-long conversation before we started recording and um, not that I feel like I don't want to like bring up any pain, but I kind of feel like I'm in, I've exhausted it. I've already done my shitty with that, you know, and I kind of just want to sit now and think about things. So I'm not going to mention that. If you do want to learn more about what happened, um, you know, my young cousin, 17 years old, he took his life the other day and. It's uh, sent ripple effects through the family and I just recorded like a little 20-minute thing that's also on the feed. So if you haven't heard about that or if you didn't know about that, you can go and check that out um, where I kind of just uh, bare my soul a bit and express some of my frustrations and anger with uh, with certain um, certain things. So um, yeah, so you can check that out but I just didn't feel the need now to kind of keep going with that. So what I want to do now is kind of maybe do something a little more fun and ranty in the typical shitty minute fashion. And uh, I actually sent this tweet to you, Troy, by somebody that I typically respect on Twitter by the name of Daniel Bessner. I don't know if Daniel listens to the show at all, but what up, dude? Um, But uh, he came out with a tweet that he said his hottest take of the day, quote, unless you're a scholar writing on Marx, Gramsci, Foucault, etc., you don't have to actually read the primary texts. Summaries are just as good and often provide greater insight. And now, this tweet, of course, caused the shitstorm. He got ratioed. (laughs) He got dragged. He was quote tweeted. But then, of course, it got lots of likes as well. So I just wanted to talk about this idea. Um, I have a fundamental problem with this for many, 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 many reasons. Um, The primary reason, the kind of most stringent critique that I would offer is this. Clearly, only a social scientist would ever make this kind of statement. <laughs> and the reason is because social scientists are fucking reductive as shit. They operate so often from this form of, like, bland materialism, extraction of data, and there is no poetry, there is no metaphysics, there is no concern with norms, and I actually think fundamentally what they offer is a view of the world that is actually lock in step with the very thing that oftentimes they're trying to argue against, which I would call is the logic of capitalist reason. And the reason I would say this, particularly with this uh, tweet, is that what he's essentially saying is that it's possible to just distill these writings down into um, simple ideas that can simply be um, transmitted via summaries. And therefore, you can just consume them because you are consumers of information and knowledge, and then therefore it can... uh, achieve some level of measure of satisfaction which in this instance would be the form of equipment of knowledge or something like that to either make yourself feel better or in theory to equip yourself to be able to act. I just don't think that it actually leads to that latter thing because I think it fundamentally stalls at the level of simple knowledge transmission rather than actually what I think would be a more robust conception of uh, examining these texts would be sitting with the thinker, sitting with the language, um, sitting with uh, the, the 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 tearing with the negative so to speak allowing yourself to to sit with the problems that are really being worked through by the original sources and allowing those to wash over you rather than simply trying to rush through according to the temporal logic of capitalism and according to the instrumental logic of capitalism that just treats these texts as means to ends. So I think there's actually a larger sort of meta problem with this entire approach that actually does a disservice to the entire point of what education and what thought can do which is really unpacking and unraveling things from a sort of like poetic source of creation and things like that and I think that when you think from within this framework of what this tweet offers you actually are counterproductive towards the ends of liberation and and then of course beyond that um I just think that it's also quite patronizing. Some people might say, oh, yeah, but working class people, they don't have the time necessarily to sit down and read Capital. And one, I don't think that's necessarily true. There's shitloads of of stories of insurrectionists and revolutionaries who read Capital, who read Critique of Dialectical Reason, who read *Fenon's Wretched of the Earth, who are reading these primary texts and who aren't scholars, and they drew tremendous resources from them. And the reason, I think, is because maybe they were in a space A headspace, you might call it. Maybe they were in a context that allowed them to be able to confront or to attune themselves to the problems and then of course maybe some of the solutions in these texts in a way that really resonated with them. But maybe then the real issue, it isn't that people don't have fucking time or that people aren't able to uh, analyze these texts, but it's that maybe our entire educational framework, our thought regime we might say, is one that essentially infantilizes people and doesn't allow them to um, equip them with certain tools, doesn't allow them to be attuned to these larger sets of problems because we've essentially already created a superficial place or a superficial orientation by which knowledge transmission um, is produced and then received and that of course goes back to the former point. So I I just have a fundamental fucking problem with this entire regime of thinking and I don't think he's in the minority here. I think even even when people were like oh my god that's horrible, I think a lot of people kind of get what he's saying. Like if you can just distill information in simple sound bites that's all that really matters. Just to equip the working class. But I think that's not really a working class then. All you're doing is you're is creating a new form of consumer or you're creating a new form of an expression of capital a new form of an instrumental thinker rather than truly creating somebody that can contest the source of value creation and value production and things like that so I just think that it's fundamentally inadequate, I think it's incoherent and uh, I love you Daniel but I'm sorry dude, uh, delete that tweet I would never say that normally and I'm only saying that because I think that's what the kids say these days but delete that tweet So
1: yeah, <laughs> That's a good old fashioned Austin Rant right there
0: honestly uh, yeah. you're still on your game bro
1: um yeah yeah I mean I, I do think it's like the instrumentalization um here that's the the real issue right and certainly there's gonna be some give and take that any person's gonna have to do when they're trying to engage even from a you know a layperson's perspective on academic stuff or some things you read some things you don't right and that's obviously fine like you got to make some trade-offs and considering what's most important to you right but it's more this like attitude of well, these historical figures who are probably pretty outdated, maybe don't have the best understanding of the current um, sphere and the social sciences or otherwise, right? Uh, why go through that? Why go through uh, Hegel's account of um, phrenology and stuff like that, right? Um, and it, the instrumentalization sort of viewpoint is going to say, you yeah, know, that's not really important for today. So, you know, use this as a tool, as a means to get to whatever is important to you, Right. Which then it sort of assumes you already know what's important to you or what's important academically. But the whole point in engaging in this study is to find out, is to discover what's important. You don't already know. That's why you're doing this in the first place. So you can't have a a good understanding of what's instrumentally valuable because you don't know what's ultimately or finally valuable yet, right? We're going to discover that in the process. Why not go to the most important thinkers in history to end up – like discovering what's finally important. That's why you do this, right? Um, I often like talk to my students about, we'll read some complicated text, right? Like we'll read maybe even some like platonic dialogues, right? Which are more perspicacious than most ancient philosophy texts, right? Or even medieval or even modern. Um, but are still difficult and they're alien. And that's a good thing, I think. I think it's good to to read things that are not immediately digestible to you because constantly everything in um, modern education is calculated to be as easily digestible as possible for adolescents. And that's, you know, there's good reasons for that. Some things are going to, we're going to just decide that this is only of instrumental value. So we're just going to like, you know, write it in such a way as it can be um, most efficiently digested. But then when we're talking about things that are of value, Um, and things where value is questioned, right, especially in philosophy, then we're trying to discover the value in the process. So that's why we read Plato and Aristotle. And that's why we read um, Kant, even though it can be extremely difficult. And you could Hmm. definitely digest Kant down into a much more easy to consume version rather than reading actual Kant. But that's a really good process. Not only do you learn how to read texts better, Um, By doing so, but you discover things you didn't know before um, that are important, that are valuable, and you creatively think with the thinker, right? Even when you think they're wrong, you are able to sort of discover why they're wrong through the process of interpreting them um, as accurately as you can and and thinking alongside, but also in a contrary position to them. And that whole process not only makes you a better thinker, um, but it helps you discover what matters, as well, and that whole thing is lost when you make the whole thing only about the instrumental
0: value of the ideas Yeah, I have three more things to add to this I love what you just said about not knowing what you value, right? And so what happens is if you don't know what you value, then what are you gonna do? You're just simply gonna rest in habit or social convention mm-hmm. or whatever it is the worldview that you've already pre-formulated that you've prefabricated and therefore when you interpret the text not to get into like freaking Gadamer and hermeneutics and stuff like that, but you are essentially going to prejudge. And what is another word for prejudgment? As Gadamer tells us, prejudice, which means then that your encounter with this text will essentially be a prejudicial reading of the text because you're going to just simply impose or project your own habitual orientation onto the text, right? By trying to get something out of it with which you're already familiar, right? And what that's going to do is that's going to determine how you take up the text. And it's not going to, and this is the second thing, it's not going to allow you to actually encounter the other. It's not going to allow you to actually encounter novelty. It's not going to actually allow you to really encounter the otherness of this text that could then introduce values to you, that could introduce new forms of thinking, that could that could not just talk about like what you value, but what value is in the first place, right? And so you kind of foreclose your possibility of actually encountering um, novelty, the other. And then third, the problem with that is then you foreclose yourself from the possibility of rupture and from the possibility of change. And I think that there's a temporal logic here that is essentially the temporal logic of chronos, the temporal logic of the time of capital, rather than the possibility of a chirotic. Kairos, the age, the epoch, the break, the messianic event, the rupture, the split, the tear, um, the fucking whatever it is. Did I say event already? The, the fucking apocalypse, whatever the fuck you want to call it. You know, Badu, Sartre, Lacan, all the fucking terms, all the people, right? Those things that they're so concerned with is what they're essentially concerned with is um, trying to contest the reproductive, the mimetic reproduct- reproduction of the same, Right, And if you are operating within the temporal logic of capital, which I think is the temporal logic of chronos, which is also related to this instrumentalization, um, then I think that that essentially forecloses also the possibility of encountering the other, and it's because you're just reproducing the same, which is the familiar, the, the habitual lived experience of everyday life that is dominated by um, the, the hegemonic logic of capital. And so I think that is why you cannot just simply distill that. And this is why I would say... One, be patient with the text. Operate from a different temporal regime. One that doesn't just need to consume, 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 get me the information, data, 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 facts, 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 facts. That's a logic that,, um, I think oftentimes creates anxiety and it creates a sort of like frenetic, uh, a, a, a frenetic pace that disallows um, certain openings, right? So I would say, that it would be better if we could have a, a, a system, a regime, a, a framework, a paradigm of um, encountering texts that wasn't uh, associated with the pressures that come from the academic rate of demand or with the um, daily systemic time schedules rate of consumption demand and things like that. And I think in that sense, that's why poetry is so wonderful. That's why sitting with a difficult text like... Capital or Discipline and Punish or um, reading Lacan's seminars or um, reading de Beauvoir. You know, that's why it's important to sit there with those texts rather than trying to just simply suck out the nuggets and the kernels because, eh, that's good enough and that's, uh, that's just simply an instrument to get me to feel better about my class position or something along those lines. Um, not that those resources are entirely invaluable, the secondary sources are entirely invaluable, but I think there is a much richer way that we can engage texts through patience and through an openness and through trying to encounter these um, difficult uh, these 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 difficult expressions of an other, right? And that's where I think I think is is much better. But I don't know. Maybe I'm just a wanky fucking philosopher, and I. Uh, Could learn a thing or two from a social scientist, but that's how I feel at the moment. (laughs) Well, it could be both, dude. It could be a wanky fucking philosopher and also be right. Yeah, I think that's usually... I I think I am, obviously. (laughs) Otherwise, I wouldn't have gotten so heated. (laughs) Uh, So, that's it. Shitty minute over. Ran over. I'm done. Let's get into the main segment. Alrighty. So, as we
1: mentioned earlier, we are doing a quick little episode on... Capitalism as religion uh, stemming from a little uh, – what you call it a missive? It could also be called like an excerpt or a – what's another word for it? Fragment. Yeah, that's the I think the most appropriate term probably or the most used term from Walter yeah, Benjamin. I think that's
0: what Agamben calls it. He calls it a fragment.
1: So. Yeah, it's just like in, uh, you find it in Benjamin's collected works or in stuff like that. It's just called capitalism as religion and Benjamin sets up three – I can't remember if he calls it like propositions or theses. I'm just thinking of theses because it's Benjamin, right?
0: He says there's three three aspects of the religious structure of capitalism is what he That's says. That's right.
1: So basically the idea there being, what do we mean when we say capitalism as religion? Well, it's there's a sort of religious structure which capitalism, um, I think a will say that it kind of mimics or imitates, right? Uh, I don't remember if mm-hmm. Benjamin uses that, uses that term, but it's something like that idea. And then additionally... Uh, In this little two-page fragment, Benjamin talks about pretty cryptically, um, but intriguingly, how some of the what what you might call the I think are sometimes called the masters of suspicion, right? The the great critical or great figures of modernity who are critical of modernity, sort of the bridge from modernity to whoever comes after uh, Freud, Nietzsche, and Marx, as uh, it seems like, and I think again, Ben. points this out, and I'm curious if you think this is actually a correct interpretation of Benjamin, in some way kind of follows along um, or is an effect of or a byproduct of the religious structure of capitalism. Um, So we'll get to that. But first, we should probably say the the three aspects of the religious structure of capitalism. The first one, according to Benjamin, is that capitalism is a cult, but without dogma. Um, And so I think basically the idea there. Is that there's a um, religious cultic structure um, to the the sphere of capitalism but the the crucial thing there is that it doesn't have a specific set of beliefs one has to sort of consciously or currently have it doesn't have dogma in that sense in fact it strips meaning from things rather than making them sacred right Mm. um as the as a cultic religion would tend to do like by selecting certain things and sacralizing them uh it does the opposite right it just desacralizes everything
0: Mm.
1: Uh, two the cult is permanent and universal so the cult is not supposed to be a temporary thing it's not supposed to bring about the end and then disappear or transform into something else right it's forever and it's not just for a gnostic select few right it's for it's supposed to be including everybody. It's universal. It applies to everyone. And then third, this, uh, the cult of religious capitalism creates guilt, but without atonement. It just produces guilt with no resolution to that guilt. And this is probably, I guess, the, the main sense in which um, the cult of capitalism is supposed to, according to Benjamin, um, create a crisis point. Um, Because it creates a problem that it provides no solution for. Whereas most uh, cults in history, they create a problem, um, probably fictitious, but then they have a resolution to that problem. A way of resolving that problem that you get access to when you join the cult. But that does not happen here. So, that pretty acceptable encapsulation of the three aspects
0: for you. Those are the three, my friend. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Um, do you want to talk about the Agamben essay now, since it's basically an expansion of this?
1: Well, really quick, because Agamben gets to the uh, the Masters of Suspicion thing, right? But I didn't want to quote really yeah. quick, so we have it on record, what Benjamin says about Freud, Nietzsche, and Marx, just really quickly. Okay, so, yep. Because they're all very cryptic, and we'll probably get back to the Agamben's sort of um, interpretations of them and what we think about that. So what Benjamin says about Freud is, he says, the idea of sin is capital itself, which pays interest on the hell of the unconscious. That's a great phrase, paying interest on the hell of the unconscious. I have no fucking idea what it means, but it's a great phrase. So something there about um, sin and the unconscious uh, for Freud, that's important. For Nietzsche, he says, The idea of the Superman transposes the apocalyptic leap not into conversion, atonement, purification, and penance, but into an apparently steady, though in the final analysis, explosive and discontinuous intensification. Mm. So again, trouble figuring out what the fuck that means, but there's something important there about the Superman and apocalypse. And then finally for Marx, he says, uh, The capitalism that refuses to change course becomes socialism by means of the simple and compound interest that are functions of Schuld or debt slash sin, since those are the same in German. Okay, so we had that on the record. Uh, At some point, we'll probably come back to this. Let's jump to the Agamben, yeah?
0: Yeah, sounds good. So then Agamben writes this essay that's just called Capitalism as Religion, and um, he wants to work through these three aspects um, of uh, of Benjamin, the three aspects of um, capitalism being a cultic religion, that it's permanent, and that um it's directed not towards resent- redemption but towards guilt itself um but he starts off the essay by i think two kind of peculiar uh, by using two pe- uh, two peculiar appeals one is um sort of religious and poetic and the other is historical and maybe political economic and mm. so which is very very, very Agamben. agambenian <laughs> yeah i was going to say very agambenian How do you already say it? Um, Very much in his wheelhouse. That's how he kind of does everything, right? Um, But so I love how he starts the essay. He just says, There are signs of the times which, despite their obviousness, those who examine the signs in the heavens do not succeed in perceiving, which is a lovely cryptic start to an essay. (laughs) Because one, he's quoting Jesus, right? Right? Um, or alluding to Jesus at least, um, that there are signs of the times from Matthew 16. And then he says, and despite the obviousness of these signs, those who examine the signs, there are people who claim to be examining things, scientists, um, prophets, uh, economists. um, They're examining the signs in the heavens, but they do not succeed in perceiving They're not successful in their examination. They cannot see. We might even say they do not have eyes to see or ears to hear, which again is kind of prophetic language perhaps lingering in the background there, right? So this is how he begins um, the essay. The next sentence is they are crystallized. This is the signs. They are crystallized in events that herald and define the coming epoch, events that can pass unobserved and almost in no way alter the reality to which they are added, yet which, precisely because of this, count as signs, as historical indices. And then he, in Greek, it's Simeaton Chiron, which is signs of the time, but it's not Kronos time, it's Kairos time, the time of the epic, the time to act, the opportune moment, something along those lines, the messianic time. And then this is where it shifts into the political, economic, and historical. He says, one of these events, so you're thinking, cool, this is going to be some like crazy fucking (laughs) world exploding event. And then he says, it's basically when Richard Nixon suspended the convertibility of the dollar into gold. So you're like, wait, what? The most mundane shit
1: there is. (laughs) Yeah.
0: like, that's this apocalyptic event? Hold on a second here. I thought it was supposed to be like fucking famine across the world or an asteroid destroys us or 9-11 or something, right? No, it's just when a policy decision was made in geopolitics and in political economics, right? That's the sign of the times. And then he basically wants to try to work through these two by I think giving substance to the claim that this transition from – a monetary system that was gold-backed from that transition to one that um, is uh, devoid of such a grounding, devoid of such a referent, an external referent, how that kind of is um, a sign of the times, how that is an apocalyptic event. And he uses then uh, uh, the Benjaminian little uh, fragment to argue that the shift essentially from a gold-backed dollar or monetary system to Um, just simple credit-based monetary system empties everything of value. And then he goes on to kind of talk about what that essentially means is that what you have in capitalism um, under the regime, we might call it of late capitalism, finance capitalism, neoliberal capitalism, however you want to um, designate it, is a mechanism whereby um, money is self-grounding. And as self-grounding, it is self-legitimizing. And as self-legitimizing, it is therefore essentially anarchic. That is, there is no foundation. There is no grounding. It is purely, we might say, self-referential. Now, he talks about how this seems to relate to a sort of um, linguistic paradigm as well, where once language is detached from a referent, you similarly get a a type of um, situation of crisis of things being anarchic or ungrounded. and then what I think is kind of most interesting about all of this is the potential implications this has for politics, which I think leads to um, certain possibilities for fascism, certain possibilities for um, uh, sovereigns to, to uh, emerge within those vacuums and to claim power within that power vacuum and this is kind of how he ends the essay he doesn't speak in these terms but he quotes Foucault who's talking about um, uh, this is the final quote he says to cite the words of Michel Foucault what we obtain here is nothing more and nothing less than the unfolding of a space with in which it is once more possible to think. That is, in this power vacuum, what we have is uh, opportunity and potency to contest those other power structures that um, might seek to ground uh, themselves or to legitimize themselves in an anarchic world. But that what this does then is this creates an opportunity whereby we can actually create new forms of power. And if you're familiar with the le- the, the work of Agamben, he might be talking here about what he calls destituent power as opposed to constituted or constituent power. Um, So that's kind of what Agamben is talking about here. He talks about um, how there's like a nihilism um, in this monetary regime that is devoid of any foundation. He talks about how essentially what you have is a uh, a credit system, um, which is a system of faith, a system of belief, but it's belief not in something, but just simply a belief in belief itself, um, a completely self-referential system of belief. So that's kind of I think the rough sketches of what Agamben does with uh, Benjamin's little prompt. Does that kind of re- sound right? Refresh anything I missed that you want to talk about?
1: Yeah, I mean don't forget the most important point, which is that all of this stems from debates about Christology in the ancient world or in the ancient Christian world.
0: <laughs> about whether Yeah, this is the... where this is where this is where Agamben I think overstates <laughs> things a lot of times, right? Like is it even like, overstating there... though it's almost like a different category than overstatement <laughs> uh, yeah, he does this in yeah he does this in a lot of his works when he does like examinations of like ancient like christian debates right like is there a sense in which there's a cross resonance whereby we can analogously relate the early christian churches arguments about whether or not jesus was uh the or uh, or has his RK in the father or whether he's simply anarchic in the sense that he also is co-substantial with the father like like there's a sense in which that might have a sort of like metaphorical cross resonance with how we understand the monetary regime but he makes it like a causal connection right like that's the <laughs> source of That has caused – that has been bubbling under the surface and therefore thought has been so contaminated and society has been so built that the zenith of capitalism, the zenith of modernity is really just an expression of this ancient Christological debate. Like that's the stuff I'm just – I'm just not so sure about, bro. Like I appreciate you but I'm not sure that that's the, the causal trajectory. You know, there's a a genealogy here. And this is one of the problems, I think, oftentimes with like a genealogical critique is they oftentimes create these nice like threads. And I'm not sure it's so nicely woven.
1: No, man. I mean, genealogy is not destiny. And Gambin certainly makes it seem like it is. Right. (laughs) But I think a more charitable interpretation wouldn't be that it's not he's not making a causal claim or some sort of deterministic claim. Right. There's something else about um, his form of doing genealogy. It it just can't be like it, it would be it would be on, beyond the bounds of possible credulity to think that it's a purely causal claim. He did no, he doesn't make it I know, clear But, but, but here's not, the problem.
0: <laughs> I, I agree with you, but here's the problem. He says things like, um, that capitalism inherits and secularizes yeah. and carries to an extreme, the anarchic character of Christology. Right. And then he talks about how there's this originary anarchic vocation that is then, um, uh, he doesn't say causally related. What's the actual word he uses? Um, He borrows it from Benjamin where he says, oh, there's a parasitical relationship, right? Which Mm -hmm. means then that there is essentially like a constitutive relationship. And that's the problem that I'm just not sure about.
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, I think we would probably say the extreme view is that it's exhaustively constitutive and therefore also deterministic, which is wrong. But then the other extreme would be that there's no relation um, and that like the realm of ideas is completely divorced from material reality or something like that. And that's also wrong. That's um, also wrong. So given yeah. that it's somewhere in between and given that, you know, I think when you read a game you're, you're kind of, you're going along for the ride is part of the, yes. the process. Right. So there's something there about, it's kind of a weird, bizarro dialectical kind of um, <laughs> rationality going on in his, yeah. And, and I think that if you, if you know that coming in as a sort of a her- hermeneutical principle, then I think you can get something out of it. Right. There's something there's something
0: working between those two extremes. I, I love reading Agamben because of that. I love how you just said that you are going along for the ride. And I love being taken along for the ride with Agamben. Because it does precisely what we were talking about in the shitty minute is you have to just tarry with him and you have to just be with him and you have to just sit with him. And he says stuff that is like, what? And you have to just – you have to be so charitable, right? You have to just kind of (laughs) suspend your critique and suspend your disbelief and just like almost be with him like you would be with a film, you know, and let it wash over you. if you're, if you're going to kind of get out of it without like rushing to the judgment, which I obviously have just done. But that's not because I'm rushing to judgment so much as it is after years and years of reading Agamben and being like, I love him. And at the same time, I'm like, nah, I think he overstates things sometimes.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think mean, you, you kind of have to have both of those in your head at the same time, right? You're not reading this like you're reading a, you know, positivistic scientific text um, to sort of right. glean facts or even a sort of um, – you know, traditional analytic philosophy article. You're not reading it like that either to sort of analyze arguments and come up with the most um, persuasive conclusion or whatever. There's something else going on here. And you know that going in, given that he's a gambin, and that's fine because your your goal, your end, right, is to come out of it with your thinking transformed, being stoked to thought. Uh, not necessarily coming yeah. out of it saying, yes, I agree with everything I just read or everything that I just read is true or something like that. That's yes. not really the point. And that's, you know, yes. I think that's very um self-consciously what a gay man's trying to do. So I think it's appropriate.
0: We're not just being overly charitable by saying
1: that. I don't think.
0: Well, and I think that I often communicate that way. Um I admire that about him because I tend to like to communicate in that way, which can probably very be very frustrating to people in my personal life, but um <laughs> <laughs> A lot of times when people ask me like what something is, I kind of want to do that Zen master thing and smack them with a cane, you know? Stop asking <laughs> what is, <laughs> um, or uh, just answer with some sort of absurd haiku in response. Um, but uh, but yeah, no, I so I actually really do appreciate the 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 sort of like embodiment of a poetic uh, communicative strategy or communicative approach. I really do actually enjoy it. Mm.
1: All right, so let's go back and talk about this faith as credit thing because that's kind of the the crux of the article, I think. So, again, just to reiterate what you said a minute ago, um, Agamben saying that this apocalyptic events, um, paradoxically, uh, strangely, was the end of the gold standard where um, money in the U.S. is no longer uh, legally bound to be backed by gold but instead is backed only by the sovereign's demand that it be paid back in taxation or something like that, Right. Um, in the words of a gambit, it's something like money becomes a form of credit which is grounded on itself alone. I don't know that it's grounded on itself alone. Um, that seems not quite correct. Probably more like it's backed by the sovereign um, and also by uh, the belief of the citizens, um,
0: all coming together. Yeah, that in some was sort so of social construction. Let's right? let let's, yeah. Let's linger on this for a minute because this is one of the two fundamental criticisms I have. Um, I I fully agree with you. Uh, I don't think that it is right to say that it is not backed by anything except belief in belief, because um, I do think that there is a a substance. Um, because one of the ways that that uh, certain thinkers speak about liquidity, for example, is that it is the capacity to meet obligations, right? Um, mm-hmm. Solvency is the capacity to meet long-term obligations. Liquidity is the capacity to meet short-term debt obligations. Um, so there's a sense in which money then is a, uh, is a liquid um, expression of capacity, of potency, which is already then speaking about an obligatory relationship in a community or a society, which then is already speaking about things that matter in that society, right? So it's not just belief about belief, but it's belief about belief in relation to things that are important to that society, at least at a superficial level, right? Even if those things that are important are ultimately alienating and devoid of value, in a typical Marxist sense, or some sort of like a critique of political economic value sense, there's still a way in which the regime isn't um, isn't completely devoid of something that it views as usia as substance as substantial that is beyond just simply. Um, pathology. I think there is a tendency towards pathology, but there's at least something that is community grounding. There is something that is at least attached to language and meaning and inscription. And so that's something that I kind of think is missing in this essay that I would want to tease out a little bit more, like precisely what is the substance or the qualities, we might say, of this faith, of a capitalist faith that I think is maybe a little bit richer than what a gives um a presentation to here you know what i mean
1: yeah it's it's really important and even though it's obvious um it's fundamentally important that you couldn't even have the concept of money unless you had a society of people who had obligations to one another um right that's that's a sort of important grounding principle and now it's not it doesn't necessitate that money exists because there's a society with obligations right we know there's plenty of social organizations that existed in history without money um so it's not necessary that money exists in that system, but it's necessary for money that that system predates in some sense that it's its grounding principle, if not a necessary one, uh, or, or even if the, the grounding principle is necessary, but the, um, the sort of uh, grounded thing, the money is not necessary to that uh, grounding. So yeah. Um, yeah, that seems pretty important. Um, although I think that Agamben's, um, the way he's going to work through this genealogy still mostly works. We just might want to add some important things to it that give him more depth.
0: Yeah, I wonder if he's if he's already inheriting um, a type of Marxist in his kind of own post-Marxist way, distinction between like uh, use value and abstract value or something along those lines, right? Because this, this language of detachment from a referent that he analogizes with regards to language being detached from referent, um, a referent, I think, kind of presumes a certain uh, like postmodern critique or critique of like the postmodern condition by which you know uh, uh, life is detached from its moorings, so to speak. And so, if if he's already inheriting then that that then what I wonder is 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 he already kind of like front loading his argument by presuming a sense in which whether it's imagined or real that there's a detachment from something that that ought to ground in the first instance right now this is what's so interesting because if that's the case he then appeals to Foucault at the end and this notion of like um, an anarchic power that actually opens up a space which it is in which it is possible to think it makes me think that it's kind of maybe more radical way to supplement what Agamben is saying and maybe this is what he ultimately be getting at is like some sort of theory of the void right? And this makes me think of like someone like Badiou or Sergei Prozorov, who we talked a lot about on this podcast, that what you get then is let's say you have a theory of like uh, a world that is detached from any sort of foundation. So a world that is anarchic. And for Sergei Prozorov, what that leads to is um, maybe a one orientation is a passive nihilism where you just sort of like throw your hands up and you say, yeah, all there are is just kind of like competing regional narratives um, and that there is no sort of like universal standard, whatever, right? Um, there could also be like the false universalism, which is where you kind of like superimpose a universalism, but it's a uh, it's a false universal. It's an imperfect nihilism is what Prozorov calls it. It's the one that takes a particular regional narrative but inflates it to the level of the absolute universal. That's a sort of like dogmatic, onto theological way forward, right? Yeah, Prozorov would reject both of those. But then there's the third one, which is active nihilism. And this is the one that derives from Carl Schmitt for Prozorov, which is not surprising, somebody that uh, Agamben spends a shitload of time working through, right? (laughs) Um, Mm. And for, for Prozorov, the Schmittian orientation of active nihilism, which is also Nietzschean, is that, yeah, the world is devoid of any foundation, so that's why it requires will and the will of the sovereign to make the decision to sort of cover over, if you will, um, the negativity of the nothing, right? And so then in active nihilism, you get um, an, an emphasis on the will or the sovereign or the nation for Schmidt, the individual, the Ubermensch for Nietzsche to perpetually be engaged in a process of transvaluating values. But it's essentially an anarchic project, um, and it's one that um, leads to a certain type of power, an expression of a certain type of power, which is also something that Agamben speaks of, Right. Um, and so then what I wonder then is, is would there not be a potential, uh, another version of this that would say, but what if we just simply kind of like sit before something like the void or pure rupture or pure event, would that allow for a universality that is a sort of ungrounded universality, but without just leaving us with a sort of Nietzschean or Schmittian process of like decisionism or, um, or volunteerism or something like that. And is it possible then that maybe that's what Agamben is opening up at the end by appealing to Foucault, but that he doesn't fully kind of like articulate what that means?
1: Yeah, it does seem to me like um, – so Agamben inherits some of the Nietzscheanism, right? Um, but yeah. the sort of – you could try to cast the part of the Nietzschean uh, move and the and the whole Schmidian move as being that the anarchic ungrounding is scary, Right. It's unstable. You can't exist that way, yeah. right? And so uh, I don't know Agamben super well, and it's been a long time since I, I really dove into some of his work, but it seems more like, you know, following kind of the Foucauldian lineage from Nietzsche, he's going to say, like at the end of this article, that the proper move is to recognize the anarchic grounding as an opportunity. Um That's And right. sort of yeah. dwell with it in a way. And that seems to me like an important obviously it's importantly different than the uh, pure assertion, pure decisionism that you might have in like in the Schmidian move, right. Uh, that the sovereign does, or like a, a sort of the bad form of Nietzsche, maybe Um, depending upon which fragment of Nietzsche you're reading today. Um, yeah. I said, that seems obviously bad. And so again, largely a sort of reaction to the horrors of doing that without denying that the anarchic ungrounding is a reality. And that we need to tarry with it. We can't just sort of um, ignore it. Like in the sort of liberal tradition where we just kind of pretend it didn't happen kind of thing.
0: Yeah. So let me just read something about um, destituent power for Agamben here. So this is from a little essay called What is Destituent Power? Um, And uh, it's here's like in the abstract. So in contrast... To attempts to affirm a constituent power independent of a relation to constituted power, which for Agamben both reproduce the governmental structure of the exception and represent the apex of metaphysics, destituent power outlines a force that in its very constitution deactivates the governmental machine. So first off, there's a sense in which destituent power is deconstructive, we might say, right? Um... So it is in the sensible elaboration of the belonging together of life and form, which I think is mitsein, which is very Heideggerian here. I think we need to think about post-phenomenological language that's being used here as well. So it is in the sensible elaboration of the belonging together of life and form, being and action, beyond all relation, that is beyond all of the kind of like Possible pre-constituted, predetermined expressions of life and form, being and action, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it is beyond all relation. That's that's what the impasse That's when the impasse of the present can be overcome. So ultimately, it points towards not only towards what it means to become ungovernable, but also towards the potential of staying ungovernable. So there's almost a kind of negative theology here. There's almost a type of um perpetual deconstructive offer that agamben is is speaking here and i think he sees an opportunity but it's the opportunity because um in the nihilism let's say of a credit based monetary system there is a vacuum and in that vacuum you can remain ungoverned so it's a type of positive theory of anarchism almost what do you think
1: Yeah, do you think – I think that's correct as an interpretation. Do you think that that leads the Agambenian project to a kind of – I mean, I know you were were talking about uh, active nihilism earlier, but to the passive nihilism you mentioned before that, where um, the lack of grounding just leads to a bunch of competing narratives, none of which has any purchase on the other.
0: Maybe this is – there's a little bit of that because I think – I think he is influenced by Foucault, but I think he's also critical of that in Foucault, and I don't think he would say that. I think he would be almost Derridean here and want us to kind of affirm a prior positivity prior to um, the metaphysics, right? A sort of like poetic opening to um, the the source that shows itself that is corrupted by metaphysics, but if we can poetically um, attune ourselves to that that prior being before being, we might even say, or that prior um, that prior before being, then what we can do is we can overcome the control tendencies of metaphysics, but we also then um, we. We refuse, like, the kind of passive nihilistic cosmopolitanism or, um, or um, relativism that is oftentimes a, a response to the false universalisms because all of those things still, they ignore the source, we might say. Um, I don't know if you would use the language of source, but I think it's, it's more attuning yourselves to the Urgrund right? Like a ground before the ground. And that in that, what you have is a, a voidal kind of attunement to like pure potency. I just don't know that he would use the same language of like the void that I'm using now. I don't know if he'd be as comfortable with that. I think he might view that as still too metaphysical maybe. But I think, I think that's what he's trying to get at. I think that would be a very sort of like positive way that we could use Agamben's, um, uh, Agamben's work on destituent power but I don't know that he fully articulates it in that way all the time.
1: Yeah, I guess I just wonder if that's even possible because <laughs> I get that the, the the critique is that, you know, well, liberalism is the ultimate sort of passive nihilism, right? Um, yeah. Because it requires this, um, you might say like a, like a master signifier or this uh, exception um, to enforce um, the fact that uh, every other uh, narrative can't gain control and so they're all equal but only before this like master thing which is capitalism right which is this cult um, that's permanent universal and provides no resolution and just creates crisis um and so liberalism is you know it, it its problem is it has this uh, sort of anarchic grounding um, at its bottom or something like that um but then i, I just wonder if if this kind of solution, which I'm not even sure I, I really understand where it's going, ends up much different. Um, mm. Yeah, sure, it's not the, it's sort of in terms of content, it's going to be different. Um, yeah, but I, I don't know if the form is ultimately different. I don't know. I, mm. I'm still trying to weed
0: through this with the with the machete here. So can you help
1: me out with that at all? Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, I, I, think, I think that in terms of if you're trying to say, like, what's the political program here, I, I, I don't think he's offering a political program. Uh, and so I think what he's actually kind of ultimately offering might be dissatisfying to people who want some sort of, like, social, political, uh, ethical program because he's essentially kind of refusing to do that because that would still operate at the level of metaphysics, right? And so he's trying to peel back the layers, peel back the layers so that he can let um, – the source, let's say, let, let the Urgrund, let the, um, the primordiality of, uh, of, of the conditions of life speak forth afresh perpetually, which would be the, the reproduction of a sort of kairotic state, right, the, the time of kairos, the messianic event, the heralding of the opportune moment. But then what I wonder is what is the opportune moment that's being heralded? Is he not just simply kind of actually expressing his own form of heralding of the heralding of the heralding, right? Like, is he not just simply um, announcing an announcement of the announcement? You know what I mean? And so what I wonder is, is is he not trapped maybe in his own uh, self-referential anarchism? And I think he might even say, sure, um, to an extent insofar as that deconstructs or... um, tears down and pulls away from the kind of tendencies of positive political um, projects to ascribe perpetually according to like hegemonic logics and according to like onto-theological orientations. And so he would say, sure, in that sense he is. But then what does it mean to unfold a space in which it is once more possible to think? I think he's concerned about what are the conditions under which it might be able to think in the first place which then is this kind of transcendental project that maybe leaves us with nothing towards which we can build, right? It just kind of hopes for the possible constitution of something in the future that would be more pure because it will be constituted under a different regime. And that to me is an apocalyptic hope and its own type of faith, um, but I'm not sure that it's ultimately one that I find satisfactory. Yeah, you know, I think that the fact that this
1: essay, especially, is not asserting a lot of positive claims is its strength, right? It's doing the deconstructive project. Um, It's showing that you know I have the gold standard as a sort of symbol or sign of the fact that there's this ungrounding um, at the heart of capitalism, and that um, it's a sort of you know parasitic uh, imitation or whatever of Christianity, and that there's this lineage there all the way back to Christology. It's important, I think, because. It does show, it's like performing the deconstructive moments um, through the genealogy of these ideas.
0: Um,
1: And that we should sort of reformulate how we think about credit and the social organization that credit engenders um, through this kind of genealogy. And that's really good. And and ending it with this notion of now we can think, right? I think is also good. Um, I do think that this is kind of like a, there's a Hegelian move and there's a um, Prazeravian move to make from this, and I wonder if they're compatible. So the Prazeravian move is okay. We've deconstructed everything and produced a void, right? Um, instead of having an apocal- apocalyptic hope for something to eventually replace that void, the void itself is the co- provides the content for the hope, right? Mm-hmm. Um, And then you get into complicated stuff about how the void produces equality and fraternity and shit like that, right? And liberty. Uh, And go back to uh, our episodes on that if you want to see how that works out, because I don't really remember it in in total. (laughs) Um, Hmm. But then the Hegelian move is like, here's what I think is interesting. What if the fact that we can have this apocalyptic hope in the first place, what if we do like a transcendental thing and say, why do we have that in the first place? Like, what leads us as subjects to have a hope that it that it could be different than this anarchic ungrounding, which produces crisis? And then, if we look at that, we can find something out about ourselves and the way that we comport ourselves to the world and to our into each other. That mm. will lead to apocalyptic hope as being a thing to look forward to, even though we're not sure even what the content of that hope would be. Right? Why would the hope itself as a form? be something we could look for and and be good and then do you mean in in a way that like
0: to that beginning point so 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 the beginning point would that be like identifying the desire within the complaint so like if we're searching for something that reveals to us a desire for something and then maybe if we can engage in an examination of that for something that we're seeking that that might give us maybe not a an ultimate foundation but at least some sort of set of positive principles that would allow us to then positively construct something in contradistinction to the, th- the thing that is the source of our complaint.
1: Exactly. And by beginning point, I meant the thing that was kind of missing in a Gambon's analysis of the gold standard, which is yeah. that it's not a um, it's not a self-grounding thing, right? Um, it's in fact money is grounded by uh, social organization, and obligations that we have to one another. And that's really what provided any meaning in the first place. Uh, and it was never really the gold that provided any meaning. That was just a, a weird symbol that we could control. And so we used it because social organization obligations are way too
0: unwieldy um, to and consider. There's a it very total. good tool of imperialism too. It was a – I think that's the imper- – <laughs> yeah. it's the imperfect nihilism. It's the false universal is what the gold standard is, right? Mm-hmm. Um. It's the regional narrative that ties everything to a particular monetary regime that sets the framework by which the world would be constructed. Now, I think—here's the thing that I think is actually wrong also about Agamben. I think that it's wrong to say that there is no solution in capitalism that is offered, that there is no redemption, right? I actually do think there is a redemption that is offered, and I think it is ultimately the conversion of every single thing into an asset. Now, will that actually— lead to the solution no but similarly i don't think that by submitting yourself under the regime of um some sort of uh the sovereign personal god does it either i think it creates a sort of like pathological guilt relation to the law and to perfection and um and, and to other things like that that i think is similar to to capitalism, so I actually think that there is a logic of redemption, um, both at the individual level and at the global level. I think that there's a process of justification that you're innocent insofar as you sort of like submit yourself to the the rule of the monetary regime, and then there's a process of sanctification, and you become perfected insofar as you um, better live according to the principles of quote holiness within that monetary regime and ultimately the promise is glorification that you'll be satisfied yeah and so gl- this is glorification where i would want is getting
1: on the forbes 500 right yeah.
0: that's right <laughs> yeah exactly it's some form of apotheosis right that is on offer but the problem is is that that promise of glorification only leads to a sort of like pathological guilt relation so i think the way he understands the guilt might be a little bit off here because i think it is essentially a guilt that is tied to a promise of redemption so what i go ahead yeah
1: Yeah, I mean, I do think it's important to note that I think the reason probably that Gammon doesn't want to say um, that, or along with Benjamin wants to say that capitalism does not not allow for atonement, is that they probably both want to say that the sort of division in consciousness, the guilt um, that we feel, it's perpetuating because capitalism is not going to offer you the solution to it, when actually it might be. But the solution it offers is just um, pathological, right? There's a reason why people who fully identify as the ultimate pure capitalist agent are psychopaths. They come across as psychopaths. Just think about how it's portrayed in media with like Christian Bale in American Psycho. I was going to say American
0: Psycho. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, American Psycho. Yeah. Um, Just Just read any Brett Easton Ellis novel and you will see what we're talking about, okay?
1: (laughs) Yeah, that person is fully redeemed and happy and uh, fulfilled, right? But they're a psychopath and nobody wants that kind of fulfillment, right? And so there's an important – like that again I think trades back on the idea that there's something important there about the fact that we understand that's not really what a human life should be like. That's a kind of – it's a sort of destitute life even if that person – in their own self-conception has achieved glorification, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And so then th- – okay. So then this is what I wonder. Um, okay. So say we identify the source of the problem, that there's like a world that is like being stripped of its values and that that's kind of essential to the kind of – let's call it the religion of capitalism, right? Um But nevertheless, people are still being induced into a pathological complicity with the system because of this promise of glorification, but all it does is breed further dissatisfaction. This would be my Todd McGowan kind of psychoanalytic reading where he talks about this in Capitalism and Desire that via what he uses from Lacan, the object cause of desire. There's this like fidelity that is perpetually um, created that creates a sort of maybe like Pathological connection to an abusive relationship with this system, right? Um, so let's say that's the case. So then, what I would wonder then is: Is it the case? So then, so then that means that it's not the case that that there's no substance to the faith, but but it's just that the the substance has a particular social form, a social form that we would say is one that is. Uh, essentially dissatisfying, without using overloaded terms. Let me just say that it's essentially dissatisfying. And then why is it dissatisfying? Well, maybe we can say, to bring in some marks here, it's essentially because there is a um, a disconnect between value producers and a reciprocal relation to that value. Um, there's no return, right? We've talked about this a few times lately. There's no appropriate uh, return on time investment, we might say, or production of value. Um, and so then what that makes me think is, okay, so what would it look like under a financial monetary regime that um, that is pathological, that is tied to some promise of, of satisfaction? What would it mean to transvaluate that system? What would it mean to, to seek a different sort of... Um, Relation to to some to some substance that would give that would give meaning, connection, attachment, um, relation to a return on value, something along those lines. And so, what I wonder is, is, does that not shift then essentially from a credit and debt relation to an equity relation? And what I mean is, is ownership, right, or participation? In the system itself, but a robust participation. So essentially what you get then is a shift from creditor-debtor to like stakeholder, you might use. Um, and of course I'm using this language very cautiously because I, I, I'm i trying to use it kind of metaphorically in a way. But but there's also some truth to it. Right? That you are a stakeholder and also maybe a shareholder, so to speak. But it's that you um, you are somebody who is grounded in the social system that is a part of this system of of promises and debts and obligations and things like that except you have recourse you have guaranteed recourse to um, to the increase of the values that are produced and you have access to a return on dividends that might result from that increase in value that is produced does that make sense yeah maybe I'm still a little bit in the dark uh, about yeah I guess what I'm trying to do is I I think some people might read this and they might say okay so then what we need to do is we need to create some sort of alternative standard right okay we go back to a gold standard you could use blockchain technology um, and what that does is that sort of like that, that makes apparent, if you will, the fiduciary relationships, the trust relationships of exchange. Um, Shout out, grounded Robinson.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um,
0: grounded in you know some system of the nation state. Um, grounded in um, some sort of trust in the government that backs the currency. You know, there's there's all these different ways that people might want to think about it. Whereas what I'm wondering is 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 could you not just essentially just create social wealth funds, right? Where, Do you know I'm
1: about that shit? Uh I'm into it, man. Um Well, here's here's the reason, right? Is that yeah. tell me this is what you're kind of getting at. Um, and I don't think it's this is not really the complicated part when it comes to what world does finance play. It seems like, well, it should it should flip, basically. It should be that financial instruments are um are instrumental tools, means with which to achieve something, and not final goods in the end, right? But instead, our social organization, whatever that is, um, plays the actual, it publicly plays the grounding role that it's supposed to play. Yes. Um, And then the financial tools are instruments towards realizing the best version of that social organization. Now, the real problem is what is the best version of that social organization? And that's the really tough problem. It seems like the easy problem to solve is, at least theoretically to solve, is what role does a financial instrument play? And that's just an instrumental role, as it was always meant to play, that's grounded and is um, deemed instrumentally good when it realizes um, the proper, uh, its proper role in social organization,
0: which we yes, obviously then have to figure out. Yes, which is that that space where, okay, we can think maybe for the first time, right? That kind of thing. Um, I think what I'm reacting to is, is a potential reading of this text, and maybe Agamben wouldn't say this but that would be that okay so so the monetary system is essentially anarchic and therefore it believes in nothing except itself and that that is somehow like bad in itself right and i don't know that that's actually what agamben is saying maybe he's even saying well shit actually this is an opportunity to seize power right because of the power vacuum that is made apparent by this shift from yeah he talks about the possibility of credit
1: atheism basically right when you expose the ungrounded anarchic um feature of capital after the gold standard it's the same as um ungrounding like belief in god like all of a sudden credit atheism is possible which i thought was really interesting because that could mean um you know when people stop believing in in credit then it doesn't exist anymore
0: that's right. Yeah, and this makes me think of the work of, like, Maurizio Lazzarato. Somebody sent us an email, actually, um, uh, about that book by, I think it was Astra Taylor that's, like, can't pay, won't pay. There's a lot of activism in this. Um, I, actually, some people at the University of Sydney were working on this um, about, like, creating systems where, where people would, like, default on their loans and things like that, um, but do it in a way that's, like, intentionally um, supported by other community groups that would uh, allow people to, to default as a sort of act of resistance Um, Jerome Ruse has written a book on, um, on sovereign default. It's called Why Not Default? That's about, like, actually if states just don't pay their loans, right? Um, and so there's a lot of, there's a lot of, like, work that's, that's going on in this area. Um, so yeah, so I guess I think, I think, what I wonder is, 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 is the problem here that I'm trying to articulate. I think it, it has some sort of relation to this, this issue that, that Agamben, um, kind of reiterates multiple times about how how credit is just simply like faith in itself, whereas I think it's important to think about actually the way that we understand money. It isn't that it is like this self-referential, like nothing that is related to um, a system of, of faith in itself as faith, but rather that it is essentially a power, and that money is a capacity in the first instance. It's a social power that is granted to some Insofar as they then have been equipped to be able to meet other obligations. And the more um, liquid you become as a subject, that is, the more you are enabled to have recourse or have access to further money, the more liquid you become, insofar as you can get more money or you can position yourself better by getting cheap credit because you have a good credit score or you have a shitload of followers on Instagram so you're getting free products or you're getting free promotion so your reputational value increases and that allows you more opportunities because your brand is bigger to create money in the traditional sense but whatever it's about capacity and then I think this relates to freedom somehow as you then are free from constraints that society would like disallow you are free from constraints by which you can't meet obligations but rather you become a sort of like um, well-positioned liquid subject in a world that is perpetually equipped. So then, my my my, I think that's actually a better way to understand how the finance economy works. Um, it works through equipping some people, empowering some people, and of course, it's a scale to greater degrees of intensity. And under certain conditions, you know, you might have more reputational value than you actually have in terms of income value um, or, or wealth, let's say. Um, but then, what I wonder is, is if we if we Think about money in this sense, that it's um, related to this issue of being able to meet obligations and therefore it's related to capacity and therefore it's essentially related to power in the first instance, which is then related to a sense of freedom. I think that kind of maybe helps us get a better understanding of what the monetary regime is and then helps us to understand possible solutions for creating one that serves the community better because then it's about figuring out how to make more subjects more liquid, so to speak. Yeah, I think I definitely have
1: more reputational value than uh, wealth. So I'll be uh, instantiation <laughs> of, of that possibility. Uh, not yeah. that I have much of either, but I definitely have more of one than the other. Yeah. Yeah, and so given that notion of freedom there, I think that gets to the idea of the the real problem of what's the proper social organization for which you know, financial instruments would be a tool. And if your notion of freedom is this purely instrumental Uh, a means-to-end notion of satisfying pre-given desires, um, which are immediately given to the subject by their biology or whatever, um, or basic psychology, then you're going to have a really deflated notion of what constitutes freedom and potency and power. Um, And I think probably come out with still, again, another form of basically just capitalism again, um, which is the kind of social organization that underpins that notion a more robust account of freedom um, is going to incorporate sort of the social constitution of every subject by one another, and that, that, doesn't, that doesn't sort of impinge on freedom, but in fact constitutes it, um, then you're going to have, I think, a much – it's still broad. It's still not very determinant, right? But um, you're going to end up with probably a much richer notion of freedom and then a better idea of the role – that financial instruments would play, which is why I think social wealth funds are such a great idea, because they involve, they sort of almost instantiate that notion of social constitution of everyone one by another, by all uh, sharing in the productive goods um, of the society at once. It kind of instantiates that. Not only does it represent it, but it even, I think, partially helps constitute it. Because if you have – if that's sort of a a basic socially accepted fact that everybody together owns all the productive goods of the society, um, then it even reinforces that that's – this is something that we do, not something that I do um, in in like antagonism to you uh, at points, but instead something that we do.
0: Yeah, and I think this goes to the kind of Benjaminian and maybe Agambenian um, critique of the Masters of Suspicion. So the reason that those three paradigms don't work is because they fundamentally only reinforce the, the power of capital. And I think the way that it works in Freud, for example, is he says that what has been repressed, the idea of sin, is capital itself. And I think we can think about Zizek talks about the um, the superego injunction, which is the more innocent you are, the guiltier you are. That is, the more fidelity you serve to the master, the superego structure, let's say, um, then the more fidelity is required. In other words, um, the more faithful you are to God, the more... Your life becomes indebted to God. So, similarly, the more faithful you are to capital, the more the demands of capital um, are exerted over life, which means that this is actually, I think, a better way of understanding the kind of guilt relation um, one to um, like a superstructure or a superego structure, but also to. Um, kind of the religion of capitalism. This would be my interpretation anyway. Um, I think that works similarly at the individual level, which is why Benjamin appeals to Nietzsche. Uh, You get a similar sort of pressure, a sort of like that frenetic pace that becomes internalized, that you must become a transvaluator. And I think that leads to a kind of like perpetual motion machine that is also an extension, we might say, of a sort of like capitalist logic. And then similarly with Marx, um, that what you get that is... He says the capitalism that refuses to change course becomes socialism. That means that it's a capitalism that doesn't fully get rid of the debt and guilt mechanisms that we just talked about with both Freud and even with Nietzsche are reproduced in socialism. Because of the compound interest. The compound interest that means the exponential increase of the debt relation, the guilt relation, the sin relation to the unconscious of capital itself as a superstructure, as a su- I'm sorry, as a superego. Structure that imposes that injunction that you must be more innocent You must be more innocent and maybe that's in the form of the state the state then becomes the bearer of the guilts of the sins of capitalism that it bears the weight of the contradictions of capitalism and therefore what that breeds is a type of Further fidelity to the centralized organization, which is a further fidelity to the super ego structure Which then only produces a further guilt relation So then the question is, is how do you just simply completely destroy that guilt relation per se? How do you destroy the debt relation per se? And that's what I think would be the fundamental question. And that's why I think the masters of suspicion for um, Benjamin and even for Agamben are insufficient. And that's why I think what I'm talking about in that shift from a debt guilt relation to one of equity would also skirt that, would get outside of that tendency towards the reproduction of the superego tendency.
1: Yeah, and it sounds like the the pregnancy metaphor of socialism we talked about with Jerry Cohen, right? He, he didn't use the word pregnancy. I can never remember the actual word that he used. Obstetric. Remember? The obstetric metaphor. That's right. Why did he have to use that word? I can never remember it. <laughs> um, yeah, and so there's a there's a sort of a sort of determinism in certain vulgar interpretations of of Marx, and you can probably find that in in um, Freud and Nietzsche as well, right? and so the suspicions that they have of of the uh modern system are good but producing a positive account out of those remains without doing the anarchic ungrounding first or the sort of exposing of the anarchic ungrounding is um going to end up being as uh Benjamin says conspiring with um capitalism with modernity
0: mm. Yeah, and it's important to remember that Benjamin is writing this in 1921. So all of the people out there that are listening right now that might have sort of post-Marxist or neo-Marxist sensibilities, like this is this is actually the condition. Like Benjamin is one of the conditions that allowed for those later interpretations of Marx yeah. to be what they are in the first place, right? So we need to remember that in 1921, Benjamin is looking at German social democratic forms of Marxism, evolutionary socialism in the work of Bernstein. He's looking at that, like scientific socialism. And then he's looking at, like, Engels, Marx, and how it's been appropriated after the Bolshevik Revolution, right? So that's what he's looking at. He's looking at kind of just two possible expressions of Marx. You know, you've got late 19th century and then early 20th century, very early 20th century expressions of Marx and therefore Marxism. So... His critique isn't like taking into consideration the Frankfurt School and value form Marxists and Wallerstein and you know things like that. Like those things didn't exist yet. So he's he's also we might say oh maybe he's being reductive in his reading of Marx, but it's it's guys like this that allowed us to even have the lens to be able to make that assessment in the first place. You know?
1: Yeah, that's a really good historical point. To note that Benjamin, in this sense, yeah, becomes the condition for um, these different readings of Marx, which maybe even are more fide- have more fidelity to Marx himself, right? But he's working exactly. with the with the specter of Marx that exists in the early twentieth century.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so what do you think? I guess what's your last last kind of thoughts on capitalism as religion?
1: Yeah, so I think, I mean, we talked about how what's the proper hermeneutic orientation to have when reading Agamben, and that maybe it's something like, don't expect to come out of it saying, yeah, I think that's all true, but instead coming out of it and saying, yeah, that stoked me to thought in a really important way that couldn't have been achieved otherwise. And that seems accurate. Like I think we talked more about not specifically how to interpret this essay than we talked about all the things that it would affect and all the thoughts we had um, that sort of were launched by thinking about this genealogy that he does in the essay, and that's I think exactly the point. I don't think it's wrong at all to have done a a very typical podcast episode of *Al's at Dawn*, um, going mm-hmm. every which way, given that that's I think that's the that's the value of Aga and Benny and work in the first place.
0: Yeah, it definitely opens up space for thought. I mean he's trying to embody the very thing that he's appealing to at the very end of the essay right is thought is oftentimes overdetermined and predetermined and how can we learn to think in the first place you know and that might be seem paradoxical because you're like but I'm fucking already thinking um but it's different forms of thought different expressions of thought different possibilities of thought Different ways of thought, Um, and so I think that's what's kind of cool. I will say this: my one of my. Go ahead. Yeah.
1: No, I was gonna say as as you were talking about earlier about prejudice. When you're not stoked to thought by something alien and different and from outside yourself, you tend to just repeat prejudices you already have and that are given to you by your social context. And yeah, the the sort of um, utility here of of reading a gambit is to be stoked to thought outside of those things. Which is why it's so great that he uses all of these uh, historical episodes, which seem to have no tie-in together, um, to sort of use those alien circumstances to stoke you to a thought that you otherwise wouldn't have had.
0: Get stoked, bro! Stay stoked, <laughs> man! Um. Yes. Yeah, agreed. I, I will say we didn't talk about it much, but I think one of my favorite of the things, both Agamben and um, in particularly but Benjamin the three aspects of capitalism as cultic religion, I think my favorite feature that he identifies is something that I think so much about and I'm thinking through the implications of it, but it's the permanence of it, that there are no days off, right? That there's no distinction between holidays and weekdays. And yeah. I think I've talked about it on this podcast, but the work of Jonathan Crary, I think is really interesting on this. He wrote a book called 24-7. You can digest it very quickly. Um, you could read it in a day or two. Um, I think that's really interesting kind of in talking about the kind of persistence, the constant permanence, not just the um, kind of like the capitalization of everyday life sort of thing, but it's even more than that. It's about time. It's about thought. It's about when you're sleeping. It's about the enclosure of everything that is meaningful under the sun, you might say, um, that it is is—it uh, is part of this process of uh, this religious Fidelity. So we are always under the pressures to be faithful and in a way because of automation and because of online technologies and things like that, we are always faithful, right? Because we are always producing value. The, the task for capital is just to figure out how to take those activities, attention, emotion, new um, new meanings, how to take those things and inscribe them into the system to benefit the already wealthy Right. But the point is, is that there is an absolute permanence and a perpetuation um, that we are pathologically induced into that I think is very sort of characteristic of capitalism. And for me, that's that's the one that I think about the most, I think. And then, of course, time is is the issue. And so I think what Agamben wants to get at with like pulling the handbrake of history um, is this idea of creating the kairotic moment the moment of the messiah the messianic break and obviously this concerns Agamben as well which is why he's such a an ap- apocalyptic thinker but it's about how to pull the break on chronos pull the break on time pull the break on the historical momentum that is pulling consistently and permanently in one direction and how to make those moments where you stop and i think that also relates to the shitty minute which is why i get frustrated with certain readings that try to just engage with instrumentality because they seem to just fit perfectly within that kind of chronological narrative that is being pulled forward um, by the momentum that is set by the hegemony of capitalism, that the rules of the game are set by capital. And what would it mean to truly be anti-capital? It means to, I think, think time differently. It means to contest that permanence. It means to find those spaces, um, that are that are interstitial we might stay right and i think that is essentially important and so that's for me where i think this benjaminian and agambinian work is so is so interesting to think about yeah
1: and that reinforces the point i mean we can probably just end here uh reinforces the point that um you know the more ubiquitous and the more permanent that the cult becomes and it does ever more even probably since again when wrote this essay right um the less you're able to to have contact with things outside of its sphere that could stoke you to thought against it, right? You know who doesn't realize that, um, what's the character in American Psycho, Bateman? What's his first name? Patrick Bateman. Patrick Bateman. You know who doesn't realize Patrick Bateman's um, life is pathological and psychotic? Patrick Bateman, because it's permanent. (laughs) He never realizes it because it never stops. He never has a moment outside of that life, right? Um, yeah, and the only thing that could ever stoke you out of that is some, some moment of like real humanity or something outside of that sphere, and it never occurs. So he's never shocked out of it.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So just stay stoked, friends. I like Be that. Stoked. We're gonna call this episode "Stay Stoked." <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. Okay, let's go ahead and uh, round out that uh, main segment there, and we're gonna jump into our sticky leaves now. Yeah, dude? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, cool. Now it is time for the final segment of the episode, The Sticky Leaves. This is where we leave you with something up-building so that you can go out about your day with hopefully some sort of recommendation that will bring life and joy and meaning to your world because we potentially live in a universe that is devoid of meaning. So, you know, we got to grasp onto those little things that give us joy. So, T-Roy, what is giving you joy at the moment? So, way back in the early
1: days of Owls at Dawn... I mentioned in A Sticky Leaves an English folk artist named Richard Dawson. I I doubt you remember this because it was so long ago, but do you by any chance? Do not. Nope. Do not remember. So I think back in 2017 is when he released an album that um, he'd been around the English, like North English folk scene for about a decade, but he really sort of made waves when he released an album called Peasants, where he basically told these little vignettes and stories about medieval English people. Uh, through this like Northumbrian folk tradition combined with like weirdly out of tune guitars and a big booming voice that also occasionally goes out of tune. Um, it's the point where at moments of listening to him, you're not sure if it's bad on purpose, but then other moments it's it's beautiful and uplifting and transports you to another realm. So you're sure that he's a genius, but he does have that element of like he kind of seems like a hobo on the street. So you're not sure if he's a genius or a madman, which is of course mm-hmm. the hallmark of the genius is you can't tell if they're a genius or a madman, right?
0: That's right.
1: Well, um, in 2019, he released an album called 2020, which is already confusing because he released it in the <laughs> end of 2019, but it's called 2020. Um, and I, I loved that album and I've just revisited it recently because I had read, um, a couple of essays at the end of 2020 talking about how, even though this album was written in like 2018, released in late 2019, it sort of presaged all of 2020 in important ways, which I think is is generally true about works of art that we think of as encapsulating a time period. It's never the works of art that happened during or after that time period. It's always the ones before that still strangely somehow envisioned the general um, like pathos of that time that end up being like the, the signature works of art. Um, I don't have examples on the top of my head, but the, I think that we'd find that that's true. If we looked at it uh, historically. So he released this album called 2020. And instead of talking about uh, little stories of medieval English peasants and stuff like that, he instead does all contemporary life in England um, stories. And he is, I think the probably the most brilliant storytelling songwriter of our times. Um, this album has a story about a um, a civil servant who doesn't want to go to work because they hate telling people that their um, disability benefits have been canceled for no good reason. And so he refuses to go into work and calls in sick and lies. There's a story about a pub that gets flooded and all the people are roaming around in kayaks, helping each other figure out how to um, gather up all their stuff and survive in the midst of this huge flood. There's a great story about um, a guy who gets obsessed with UFOs and then his marriage falls apart and he's not sure if it's because of the UFOs or something else. Um, It's just a constant stream of brilliant little stories about people's relationships and lives basically falling apart in the midst of like really slow societal collapse. And that can sound really dark and tragic and stuff, but it's all sorts of humor and weirdness throughout the whole thing mm. that makes it really beautiful. And even some uplifting moments, there's one song called two Haves" about a, a boy who's playing football, European football, soccer, and he fucks up majestically at the end. And his dad's really disappointed in him because all he cares about is his son being good at football. But then at the very end, the father sucks up his disappointment and says it's okay don't worry about it do you want some chinese takeaway or fish and chips and that's how the song
0: ends <laughs>
1: and and he delivers that final Aww. line in a really great like as if it's like the denouement of a great story of chinese takeaway yeah. or fish and chips but that's all it is and it is it's it's, it's paradoxically this great little takeaway um, yeah there's also i just want to say two more things about it there's one song which is probably the the best song on the album and, and it was the lead single as well called jogging where um the character talks about how they were told by their therapist that they need to go jogging to help relieve some of their anxiety and he and then the rest of the song takes place while the character is jogging and there's these little moments where the character talk like gives examples of their of their paranoia that stems from their anxiety of their social um, paranoia or social anxiety um one mm-hmm. of them was uh that he knows he must be paranoid because every time he gets on the bus, he feels the many pair of eyes weighing up his person surreptitiously, which I it's so weird that, you know, when I lived in Scotland, um, I had this routine where a couple times a week I would walk three miles to get to the shore where there was a gymna- or like a basically like a public um, it was a skate park, really, a giant skate park that had a little mm. room where you could play basketball on a one third court and no one ever used it except for me. And you had to pay three pounds to use it for an hour. It was ridiculous. And I would walk <laughs> three miles each way um, twice a week to go down there and play basketball. And, I, and I, I feel like and there's a music video for this song where Richard Dawson himself is lumbering um, in his hoodie. Jogging through somewhere in North England, um, sort of acting out some of these scenes. And it reminds me, it's like fully embodies the, the, the feeling of like uh, alienation and like, I don't belong here and I don't know anybody here and it's a wholly different world. Uh, and that sort of social anxiety that comes from being in an alien environment like that, it's, it's perfectly encapsulated for me. Hmm. Um, oh yeah, and the final paranoia that the character has is, as he's jogging is that he hears a busker uh, sneaking um, curse words into Wonderwall as he's busking that song. And he's like, did he really say that? I'm not sure, but it sounds like he did, which is a great example of Hmm. the weird effects of social paranoia. Yeah. Uh, Last thing is just to reiterate how much Dawson is like one of the great poets of our time. Here's the opening to the final song on the album, which is called um, Dead Dog in an Alleyway. And it's a song about a uh, homeless person who's sleeping outside some kind of restaurant that has a neon sign. And there's a bunch of people celebrating a birthday inside or something like that. The song starts out with this line, dead dog in an alleyway, dusted with snow, on a bed of burst bin bags. Don't you Hmm. want to read that Hmm. book? (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah
1: it's such a great line it has that alliteration at the, the end big
0: fans. yeah I'm looking at the lyrics right now so this, this yeah. album it literally came out a little while ago did you just discover it or are you just sharing it now
1: no I listened to it back then because Dawson's one of my favorite artists but um, and I, and I really enjoyed it um, but people have kind of been going back to it when 2020 ended And sort of thinking about like the way that it talks about social anxiety and about relationships deteriorating and about familial issues and all this kind of stuff. And paranoia is a big part of it um, really speaks to, I think, how a lot of people felt during lockdown and still feel during lockdown, even though there's nothing about being locked down um, in the lyrics because, you know, there was no anticipation of the pandemic or anything like that it still, it speaks to that sense. And I, I went back and I've listened to the album a few times since then, and it's really resonated with me just how brilliant the album is with some time separated from first hearing it, you know? And so mm. I think it does have that that status of the thing which didn't predict the pandemic, right? Certainly not. It's not like Nostradamus in that way or um, in any sense of like uh, prophetic, but instead it, it encapsulates as great works of art do a feeling that it itself predated um, and so it was anticipatory or something in that way
0: hmm it's interesting I, um, I'm i reading Byung-Chul Han's book on Zen Buddhism at the moment the philosophy of Zen Buddhism and uh, he's talking about how basically all these philosophers have misunderstood Buddhism like Hegel misunderstood it Heidegger misunderstood it Meister Eckhart misunderstood it um, People oftentimes speak of Eckhart in relationship to Zen Buddhism, but that's wrong, etc., etc., right? But one of the things he talks about is that, like, one of the amazing things about Zen haiku, uh, and it reminded me a lot of just this opening line from this dead dog in an alleyway dusted with snow on a bed of burst bins, is that a lot of times you get a sort of, like, absurdism in, um, like, Zen teachings and Zen haiku, where, like, I think one Zen master, a student asked him, like, like, uh, what is the Buddha?, And he said, like, three pounds of hemp. And it was just sort of like (laughs) an, an absurd response, but it's a response that doesn't seek to enrapture us and to transcend us to some other world because it's a radical, pure imminence, right? And there's kind of something here about, like, this dead dog in an alleyway dusted with snow on a bed of burst bin bags that is just so kind of almost just purely phenomenological, but in a way that it isn't, like, trying to speak in a representational sense. Like, I mean, I'm sure that there is some sort of thematic metaphysics that you might be able to to um, to take from this. I mean, it just seems that that's hard to get away from entirely. Um, but it does at least, there's sort of like this tending towards like a radical imminence, uh, at least when I'm just looking at the lyrics here right now, that is kind of, it made me kind of think about that. So I, I don't know if that's true throughout. Like, I we might think of it as like a nihilism or as some sort of... Um, like a like a a really strict materialism but we could also think of it as like an imminence and that there's something that the nothingness of imminence isn't like a a nullification it isn't a privation of some other substance you know but rather it's just kind of like the the positing of absurdity or the positing of imminence itself
1: yeah i mean i think great art does that right um, the point of art isn't just to tell you what to think right um, yeah. is to put you in, the, in yeah. someone's life from their point of view and for you to experience it in an empathetic way that transforms you. Um, and there's going to be some direction to that transformation. It's not going to be purely abstract, right? But it's going to be in part like the work that you do in doing your empathetic uh, relation with the character um, that transforms you. And so it invites you to be a subject as well rather than just a passive uh, receiver of something. And which, I mean, and there's very few pronouncements of actually like any actual claims of anything in this album. In fact, the only one I can think of really is there's one song called Fulfillment Center, which is all about people working in an Amazon warehouse. And it's just a horrible life of drudgery and misery. Um, it's In fact, it's hard to listen to the song because it's just uh, it makes you like exist in that life and it makes you hate it. Right. And then the character mm-hmm. at the end finally says there must be more to life than simply... Um, dying to survive or something like that and that's the most Whoa. sort of like concrete um, normative statement you could Whoa. that he makes in the album I think and it's probably what's so shocking because it's so rare on the album the rest of mm. it it's just putting you in someone's shoes you experience it um, right as proxy and then it mm. transforms you in a certain way and art does that in this great way so that you know there's going to be judgments you make based upon it certainly upon reflection but the point of it is to make you live a different life for a time and experience the world through someone mm. else's eyes, uh, which is why it's different than pure philosophy or something like that. And then why they're so good as um, as compatriots, right? Because mm. you can do that living of someone else's life through their point of view, and then you can reflect on it later. And you can go back and do it again in a different guise and reflect on it again later. And there's no sense in which they have to be competitive, right?
0: Yeah. Hmm love that love that love that well cool so, yeah, richard, so dawkins. richard dawson
1: richard dawson not dawkins dawson not that's dawkins. a different guy My bad. <laughs> <laughs> that's a different guy who you should not read because he is uh, not great richard dawson's a much better philosopher than richard
0: dawkins not a, high, not a high bar but he's a better philosopher yes awesome uh well let's go ahead and wrap up the episode there man um. Again, listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. Reminder that our merch page is up, owlsatdawn.com. Our Discord is live, so go to the Owls at Dawn Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash owlsatdawn to get access to our Discord, as well as bonus episodes and things like that. Um. Yeah, you can email us, you can tweet us, everything like that. I don't think there's anything... Too important that we got to say at this point. Am I leaving anything out that we should say, Troy?
1: Something very important you're leaving out, dude. Oh, what, 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 what's that? Das Verdammte, Mary Konski.